Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Prosperity by the Pint. I'm your host, Bryce Carter. I'm a certified financial planner, chartered financial consultant, certified investment management expert, no, analyst. I'm a self-proclaimed millennial money expert. This is a podcast where we talk about money, investing, business, and life success, all while having a cold beer. I just want you guys to know that my friends now all the time, anytime we're doing anything, it's it's they always saying to me like, all while having a cold beer, we're playing a game of cards. They just, I don't know, they're just joshing me a lot, all while having a cold beer. They're joshing me all while having a cold beer. Anyway, this week's beer is coming from uh, Grand Haven, Michigan. It's Oddside Ales uh, Beer Me American Lager. I've had it one time before. It's a very patriotic can with a red, white, and blue American flag covered bald eagle getting ready to rip your eyeballs out. And the beer is very nice and light, and it looks really, uh, it looks crisp and light, like a sip all day by the pool kind of beer. And damn, is that good. That is delicious. I would highly recommend it. Oddside, uh, Oddside Ales Beer Me American Lager. So this week's episode, it's rather timely. Uh, I'm going to talk about currencies. So what you don't know about currencies, and currency is getting a lot of attention right now from two different fronts. One, from whether or not China is manipulating their currency to help uh, fend off the trade war uh, retaliation um, type of thing. Uh, basically, are they devaluing their currency to make up for the fact that we're charging them tariffs on on um, goods coming from China? And then on the other side of things is Bitcoin and other digital currencies and how this all goes uh, goes together. So I got to say the one of the more interesting. Uh, gosh, I shouldn't say this like this, but one of the more interesting conversations I've ever heard about currency. I haven't heard that many interesting conversations about currency. So the only interesting conversation or speech I've ever heard about currency came from uh, Steve Forbes. I was at a conference a couple of years ago. I'm trying to remember what year it was. It was whenever uh, Russia annexed Crimea and uh, Steve Forbes talked for like 35 minutes about how we're going to war with Russia. He was wrong about that, at least up to this point. But then he talked uh, for a fair while about currency and it was really interesting. So basically he laid it out that currency just makes it easier to do transactions. That's it. That's the that's the utilitarian purpose of currency is to make it easier to exchange goods and services. For example, Let's say I am a winemaker and I make wine and I make really good red wine and I need to buy uh, some shoes for my wife. She has plenty of shoes, believe me, but I need to buy some shoes. So I go to the cobbler to buy some shoes and the cobbler says, great, yeah, I would love to get some wine from you in exchange for shoes. And he only likes white wine. Well, crap. Now I got to trade my red wine for white wine in order to give the guy white wine in order to buy shoes. And then he gets the white wine and then he wants to trade some of the white wine for maybe wool or leather, leather perhaps to make his shoes. So he goes to a local uh, uh, cow farmer and says, I want to buy some some leather and here are some shoes. And the guy says, or here are some uh, white wine. And the guy says, well, I don't, I don't want any shoes, but I could use a couple of new jackets. So then he has to go and trade his shoes or his white wine for jackets in order to buy some leather in order to make some shoes. You see how this kind of gets a little bit complicated? Now that, that system I'm describing is obviously a barter system and it works perfectly if you have what they need and they have what you need and vice versa. It does not work so good if you're trying to negotiate 
terms of a good or service and you don't have like interests. You simply want what they have and you have nothing that they have. So what you create is a currency, uh, a universally understood metric of value that makes it easier to do transactions with, right? So in other words, money is exchanged instead of a barter system where goods and services directly exchanged. Now, money and currency is actually, they don't know how old it is. It's, it's prehistoric, meaning it's, it's before written history. Uh, the first money, I got to take a beer break. That was a, that was a pretty long t- uh, diatribe there. I might actually finish this, this one during this podcast. It's like 83 degrees out. I was outside working a little bit earlier and that is just going down as smooth as cold water. Anyways, so it's prehistoric. Money is is, is prehistoric. Uh, w- w- what scientists think happened is essentially as we um, domesticated cattle and we switched from essentially hunter-gatherers to an agricultural communities where now all of a sudden you had people in a concentrated area that were all doing goods and services and making goods and services, uh, that we needed easier ways of transacting. So the earliest, uh, the earliest signs of more formalized money come something like 6,000 and 9,000 BC, but I'm not a historian. I'm just a simple financial advisor. Anyways, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Even before then, it looks like hunter-gatherer communities exchanged things like like seashells, for example, uh, in order to exchange uh, to, as, a, as a metric of value. But what I'm saying is money is old, okay? So what if we move forward a little bit, money has taken all kinds of shapes and sizes and uh, little intricacies. So I actually had a course in college and I remembered this, this story from college. So there's a, uh, there's an Island in Micronesia and it is home of this people, the Yap people of Micronesia that exchange money stones. They're called rye stones. I don't know how you pronounce it. R A I. And there's these, these stones, uh, and the biggest are 12 feet, in diameter and uh they're like a donut shape with a hole in the middle and the heaviest being you know eight thousand pounds and those were their currency and even up until this day they're still exchanged as currency now here's the craziest thing about this culture is because these stones are so obnoxiously large some of them up to 12 feet eight thousand pounds and some are just a couple centimeters or inches across they don't actually transfer ownership all the time as far as like who possesses it they don't transfer possession i should say they transfer ownership if i'm buying some of your cattle you may now own my money stone my right rye stone however it doesn't mean i move it from my front yard to your front yard the entire basis of the value of their stones is oral history so Everybody agrees that what the value of a stone is based on how difficult it was to obtain. Basically, really big stones are difficult to obtain, so they have more value. But you don't actually have to have it in your possession. It could be in your neighbor's front yard, but yet still might be yours. And that's how a person is uh, determined whether they're wealthy or not. In fact, they have ancient lore that says that one stone was being traveled by canoe and it dropped to the bottom of the ocean to never be seen again. Well, everybody agrees that the stone is likely still at the bottom of the ocean. So they just decided that whoever owned it at that time still owns it and can trade that value as if that stone were in their pocket because it doesn't have to trade possession. It's just a, it's just a meaning in oral history. I might be going too much into history here, but I think this is, you'll see what I'm leading up to here. 
So even more modern uh, than that, which would be, I mean, they're even using these stones today. It's not their primary currency system, but they, they exchange uh, uh, ownership of these stones for big things like marriages and things like that. But more modern, after World War II, uh, Germany was dealing with inflation, more specifically hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is when the cost of goods and services is going up at such a rapid pace. There's not enough money supply, essentially. So they're just printing money like crazy. What the German government ended up doing is started printing German marks or German dollars on wood. Like they were literally wooden dollars, wooden marks. Once they started doing it, every city and town that had access to a printing press started printing these wooden dollars, wooden marks, and they were exchanged for goods and services. It didn't actually help curtail uh, hyperinflation at all, but it's still really interesting, and and they're around today. They're collectible items. So the thing that I think you should take away from this is currency can take all kinds of, of shapes and sizes, and even though today it's predominantly paper currency, um, not all these these currencies were backed by things, and yet they still have value. In fact, most currencies today are fiat currencies, meaning they aren't backed by anything. Uh, even the German wooden dollars were called not geld, which is the direct translation is not gold. So it was literally a piece of wood that just said, this isn't worth anything, but we're, I can buy stuff with it. That doesn't make any sense, but that's what it was. Now, of course, we have the U.S. dollar today, which until 1971, which was actually, it was actually backed by gold. You could exchange your, your U.S. dollars for, for, for chunks and ounces of gold. Um, you can't obviously do that today. It was uh, part of the Nixon economic shock when they took the U.S. off the gold standard. And now it fluctuates via market demand, which makes a lot of sense. So the value of the dollar fluctuates via market demand. Think about it this way. Everything else in our society fluctuates based on market demand. Right. So we have a uh, we have a finite amount of of real estate. Right. There's only so much land on planet Earth here that it can be bought. Right. So as a subdivision gets developed and there's only 30 lots, the first lot may be pretty inexpensive and the second lot might be. But if it's in a high demand area, you can bet your you can bet your bottom dollar, even though you can't exchange your bottom dollar for gold. You can bet your bottom dollar that lots 28, 29 and 30 are probably going to be sold at a premium because it's finite, right? So the market demand uh, uh, dictates it, right? Like there's a, there's a lot of dandelions in my front yard in the spring. There's no value there because they're, they're, they're essentially infinite. But if I had owned the last dandelion in the world, it would probably be worth something to somebody. I don't know. So market demand controls currency value. So what you have to understand about currency values changing is that there's a lot of little levers that world economies, central banks, uh, for instance, the U.S. Central Bank is the Federal Reserve, uh, the European Central Bank, uh, China's uh, state-owned bank, can essentially pull levers to change the value of their currency in order to, um, to, to, to head off certain things like inflation or deflation, hyperinflation, um, or to offset trade, trade worries, trade wars. Beer break. Again, that was a long try. Uh, diatribe so uh, the question becomes because President Trump has said this a lot others have said it too is that China manipulates its currency it purposely devalues the currency which makes it very inexpensive to to buy uh, certain things uh, from China so it makes their companies more competitive on the global scale but 
is China manipulating the currency or is it just hoopla? Is it just pulling normal levers that central banks do? And I'll got to say, like, the complications of currency, currency manipulations and how central banks handle their 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 economies is beyond the scope of this this podcast and this episode, certainly. But the thing you got to remember about it is that it's an extremely complicated topic. I mean, there is geniuses on Wall Street that have developed financially engineered products in order to offset some subsets of currencies that you've never even heard of and I've never even heard of. So when we're talking about currencies, it's a, it's a global economic complication beyond the scope of almost any one individual's comprehension. But I'll just give you one example. Uh, so China claims to be about 15% of the world's GDP. GDP is gross domestic product domestic product, essentially the total value of goods and services in a big exchange. So they claim to be 15% of the world GDP, which is a huge number, number two only behind the United States. Yet only 1% of transactions are done in the Chinese currency, the Chinese yuan. So ask yourself, how is that possible if they're 15% of the world GDP, but only 1% of all transactions are done in their dollars? That doesn't make any sense, right? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, with that specific example in mind, you could ask yourself why? Well, that's because the outflow of dollars out of China is very, very, very rigid and strictly monitored by the government. People cannot just freely move their money overseas. So you have everybody's heard of Chinese billionaires that are sending their kids to the United States and Canada and other places for education. A lot of times those Chinese billionaires are buying investment properties in the U.S. and Canada and London and and Paris and so on. But they're limited on how much they could do that. If they could move their money outside of China uh, at their free will, you can bet your you can bet that the Chinese currency would essentially collapse because so many dollars would leave overnight and be invested into a diversified portfolio of foreign real estate. Make sense? So just a very small example as to why the Chinese currency, Chinese is essentially manipulating their currency. I also think it's a little bit fun to get some history behind currency. And I wanted to spend up, you know, wrap this episode up on, on two very hot button topics. I don't know about hot pot button, but maybe Twitter trending topics, which is Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies and gold. So if I talk about gold for a second, is gold is always pretty much always had value, uh, at least in modern societies, but it doesn't have any utility value. What I mean by that is, is um, it doesn't really do anything. If I buy gold, right, and I put it upstairs in my safe, and I take it out 10 years later, I don't have any more gold, I have the same amount of gold, it hasn't paid me any income. It just matters whether the gold that I could sell, if I could get more dollars off of it or less dollars off of it. And you can say, well, yeah, but gold is a safe haven. And so if the world economy collapses, then gold's going to be worth something. No, if the world economy collapses, the only thing that's going to be worth anything is penicillin and bottled water. So maybe some bullets, right? So think about it in the sense that, yes, it may have value. Yes, it has value today. Yes, it tends to go up when, when markets go down. But it's, it's, it doesn't do anything. It's, uh, it has no utility to it. I'm, I'm not saying that gold's a bad thing or investing some of your portfolio in gold is a bad thing. I'm just saying it's it's not the greatest investment ever, which depending on who you're listening to on, on uh, different business shows might try to convince you that it is. Now, Bitcoin, on the other hand, I, I, I'm not saying contrary to my views on gold. I'm saying Bitcoin is valued because it, 
the way that I look at Bitcoin and, and, and right now it's purely speculative. It's a speculative investment because it moves too much. It's not level enough to act as a currency, right? Like I want my dollar today to be able to buy a can of Coca-Cola, right? I don't want my dollar tomorrow to be able to buy a 10th of a can of Coca-Cola or buy 10 cans of Coca-Cola. I want it to be able to buy one, right? You need currencies to be stable and reliable. So you know what products or services you can afford with the set amount of currency that you have, right? Because Bitcoin moves up and down so much on any given day, the purchasing power of Bitcoin could be substantially smaller or larger than it was the previous day. It doesn't mean that long term it won't it won't be worth something uh, as a currency, and I think it has a lot of really interesting uh, applications. It's a it's a cost effective way of transferring money. It's a confidential way of transferring money, which I think is going to end up causing regulation to step in because people governments want to know where the money's going, whether it's dark areas and not to taxes or for nefarious purposes. But that being said, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is there's going to be a finite amount produced, right? So your those Bitcoin miners out there, there's going to be eventually, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, it's going to stop. You can't make any more Bitcoin. So then it becomes like real estate where there's a finite amount of it. And that's what I think makes it really interesting. It's still, it doesn't have a utility. Um, it does, there is Bitcoin wallets that pay interest, which is, I think, interesting. But it, it, it's a it's a different it's a different scope. I think it's too soon to know where it's going to go. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But that's this week's episode of Prosperity by the Pine. I hope you found it interesting and fun. I did. I had a lot of fun researching this topic. The beer again, because I loved it so much. Oddside Ales Beer Me American Lager. It's light. It's delicious. Sip it on a hot day. Don't forget to subscribe. Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, wherever you listen. That's where we are. Cheers. <laughs>